Hello there. Welcome to the show Out East, where we have real conversations with real people. My name is Tayo, T-A-Y-O, and I'll be your host for the remainder of the show. Remember that new episodes will be live on all streaming platforms every single week. That's right. We go live every single week. You can follow us on all social platforms as well, like YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. All the links will be in the description of this episode. See you. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Um, today, we have a guest on the show. We have a guest on the show by the name of Joe Merce. Welcome, Joe Merce. Welcome to the show. Um, Joe is currently a teacher here at Jiangxi University of Finance and Economics. But more interestingly, Joe has a very deep and in-depth understanding of Chinese culture. So there are a lot of perspective. There are a lot of, um, of things that Joe has and knows about the Chinese culture that I feel like the everyday person does not know about. So... Welcome, Joe. Welcome to the show. Welcome Thank you so much, Tayo. It <laughs> is my pleasure to be here. You have talked about this so often, and I was hoping that we would get a chance to meet up to do this. And I'm glad to see that our schedules aligned. Absolutely. Same Same here. Same here. Um, before we get into the show, so I made Joe a pot of tea, a pot of um, saffron tea. This tea is originally from Xinjiang province. Um you know, interestingly, I gave it to Archie, mm-hmm. and Archie said that it's a tea for ladies. Ah, yes, because it's smooth and it's soft. So, well, I'm I'm a soft guy. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> so soft. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm soft, Joe. So, mm-hmm. um, we're gonna get some soft tea, and you know, hopefully that will increase our softness. <laughs> 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 but yeah, so let let's start with you, Joe. Let's um who is Joe Mars? Is it is it always Joe? Is it is it Joseph? Which one? My teachers would always call me Joseph, but uh through school I was always called Joe. Oh, okay. So whenever I'm addressing one of my teachers back home, it is always Joseph. Uh generally though, among family and friends, it is always Joe. That's great. So um, give us an introduction to you, Joe, as, as a person. Okay. Who is Joe Merce? So, as you know, I am from America. Uh, I came to China just, I suppose it was a year and a couple months. Yes, I came here last February, well, February before last, uh, right before COVID-19 closed the doors to China. I was very lucky to get this job. I was teaching in Thailand I had originally wanted to teach in China, but my international studies professor had said, you probably don't have enough teaching experience yet, so you might want to boost your resume by first teaching in China, and uh, by first teaching in Thailand. And that is what I did. I enjoyed my time there. I learned a lot about the pedagogical skills. And from there, 
I was accepted to become a teacher here at a renowned university. Like Jiangxi, I was a student here uh, three years ago now, wasn't it? Yes. yes. Wow, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Three years ago, I was a student here. And while here, I was able to learn so much about the culture, the language, and just build further my love of the culture all around. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. So let's talk about, let's talk about um, you as mm. a Chinese history scholar. Mm. I don't think I've met a lot of people who study or who have studied um, Asian Chinese history. So um, how did you get into that? You know, you grew up as an American kid mm-hmm. and here you are a Chinese scholar learning and well, basically you've learned for what, for the better of the past five years now. Yes. Roughly you've been so. studying ancient Chinese history. How does one go from an American kid to becoming an ancient Chinese scholar? Well, when I was a boy, I absolutely loved video games. And there was a video game called Dynasty Warriors made by a company called Koei. And Koei uh, was well known for its strategy games and its beat-em-ups and -and hack-and-slashes. And that is what Dynasty Warriors was, a hack-and-slash. But it was based in the Three Kingdoms era of China. So, from just that start of the game of wanting to learn more about these stories, these histories, who are these people that I'm playing as, why am I fighting against this person, what is the deeper story here? It then led me to a book called Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is one of the four great historical novels of China. And from there, once I read the book, I wanted to learn more and more, to learn the real history. And so I did. And as I read more, there was a further part that I needed to understand. Why did these people act in this way? What in their culture made them act in this manner? Because it's completely foreign to so many ideas that we are taught in the West. Why is someone who cries a lot able to become emperor? Why is someone who continues to lose and lose again able to rebuild their forces no matter what happens to them? That is something that is rare in Western history. How is it that a commoner from a nowhere place managed to become king and emperor. These are stories that are relatively unique to the Chinese experience. And I wanted to know why. And that is what this all came down to, going back to the start, trying to learn as much about the history as I could. And I am glad to say that I have a decent understanding of it now. (laughs) A decent understanding. Um, I remember that um, when we first came to China, Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, I and Joe actually came to China at the same time, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And um, we were taking Chinese classes. I remember that in the course of the class, mm-hmm. you know, while we were learning some characters and things like that, yes, you would usually ask some questions regarding the historical context yes. behind a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and even sometimes, right, I remember that some teachers would usually struggle with that historical context Mm. that you would provide to say, oh, okay, is this because of this? Is this because of that? So I think that your understanding of the Chinese culture is really impeccable. It Mm. is really, I know you try to be modest about it, (laughs) but um, I think it's impeccable. And that's one of the things that I respect about you is 
you've taken the time to sort of, you know, go outside of your comfort zone to learn something that is, you know, significantly different from um, who you are as, you know, as a national identity or as something. So, yeah, I, I really respect that. I really respect that. But interestingly, how did your family, how did your parents, how did they feel about you wanting to learn Chinese history as a career? Interestingly, my family has always been laissez-faire about me. Oh. They have never forced me to do anything I didn't want to and always let me follow my own path. Um, when it came to going to church when I was a boy, I did that of my own volition because my mom had had trouble with the church before and she wasn't going to force her children into that kind of lifestyle because oh. my grandparents were fairly strict Catholics. Oh, and okay. uh, that did not apparently go well with my mom. Oh. And um, when it came time to raise us, she let uh, my sister and I follow whatever we pleased. And I went to the nearby church. But once I was around 12 or 13, I had a real crisis of faith uh, mm. because I was seeing so many contradictory elements within the Judeo-Christian belief systems and I wanted to find something more. And that is when I stumbled upon Taoism. And Taoism uh, is probably part of the reason that I really grew attached to uh, Dynasty Warriors and that whole uh, Chinese idea that was pushed forward by that game. Mm. And uh, I was able to learn so much by reading these old books that had been translated way long before. But uh, to get back to your question, they didn't really have a response at first, when I was younger, my mom was still like, do you still believe that uh, Jesus is the Son of God? <laughs> Eventually, I had to say, no, no, I don't. And here's the reason why. Because there are so many similar beliefs in ancient faiths about there being sons of gods. And even in the Bible, sons of gods are mentioned as early as the book of Job, mm. Which deals nothing in context with mm. Jesus. Of course, that might be open to interpretation, mm. uh, but uh, that's simply how I always viewed the case. But uh, yes, there was no real pushback. Eventually, my family just let me do what I wanted. Uh, however, this does not mean they supported me in any <laughs> way when it came to schooling. Okay. When it came to college, I had to put myself through it. I had to wow. pay for it out of pocket, get loans, or get grants. I was lucky enough to get grants. Well, firstly, what happened was I entered into the workforce because I didn't do too well in high school, actually. Oh. And I didn't get many scholarships. And they basically just put me into a work program. And that is what I did until 2008 when the Great Recession hit. Mm. At that time, I was working at a rather well-to-do um, China shop, uh, selling mm. porcelain and things like that. Oh, okay. I didn't and, know that. Oh, <laughs> I guess I never mentioned that. Oh. A place called Royal Dalton. Oh. Where, where was this place? It was in Lancaster. Oh, yes. Uh, I guess I should mention I'm American. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm American. I'm from the state of Pennsylvania, the small city of Lancaster, mm. Lancaster County well-known for its tranquil fields and the Amish. For any American viewers, the <laughs> Amish are a people that are very simple. Yeah. They wear all black, uh, shun electricity, yeah. and try to live a peaceful life in commune with the nature and God. Uh, very interesting people. Mm. I knew a couple of them when I was younger, mm. and that's what 
my hometown is best known for. Oh. Uh, but to go back to the question at hand, uh, yes, I basically had to put my own way through college while working a job because once the job fell through at Royal Dalton with the Great Recession, I was still able to find other small side jobs that I had to do on top of my uh, top of my college learning. And unfortunately, I couldn't afford more than two or three classes a semester. So it took me much longer than it should have to even get a basic degree. Mm. But yes, my family didn't really care much about what path I took as long as I was making something of myself. Wow. That's, that's an interesting story. Um, I think that um, in contrast to, um, in my case, being um, from being from the society that I am from, my parents are Nigerians. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard about the Nigerian parent thing, no. or especially the Nigerian mom. Mm -mm. Um, to a Nigerian mom, you are never old. You're still huh. always the baby that she gave birth to. So <laughs> our parents are pretty much very involved in, you know, the choices that you make, mm -hmm. um, the kind of career path that you want, you know, even I think now it's better because mm -hmm. growing up, um, there were just a handful of things that you could want to become mm -hmm. and your parents would be proud, you oh. know? So I think going back, telling your parents like, oh, mom, dad, I want to be a cinematographer or I want to be a content creator. They're mm -hmm. like, what is that? <laughs> you know, like, well, what is that? You, it's either you be, you become a doctor, uh -huh. you become a lawyer, yep. you become, um, a pilot, oh, you know, or I don't remember the last one, but yeah, those were the jobs at that time. Um, but I think things are starting to change now, you know. Oh, good. So parents are more supportive of um, what the career choices that people are starting to make mm -hmm. um, in that regard. So, but it's interesting that you know there's that contrast in um, in how you um, you know took on adulting and as opposed to how. Um, I also experience adulting, but mm. great, great one. I'm wondering if part of that might be not just because of our uh, different cultures, but possibly because of our different classes. Uh, I was born into a fairly lower middle class family, and I was the first person in my family to actually graduate college Oh, uh, oh. in several generations. And yeah, that... I'm wondering if that might have something to do with it, of just seeing someone reach the level of college oh. so they didn't care what it was in. Oh, so I guess there was not a lot of significance attached to a college degree. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> I would, I'd say, well, I think most Nigerian families um, place a high degree of um, significance on education. Good, good, um, as it should be. I think that, you know, it's one of the things that parents will fight tears and blood to make mm -hmm. sure that, oh, my kid goes to school. I want mm -hmm. my kid to go to college. I want you to get a degree. And it doesn't just stop there. You know, it goes on to, you know what, now you're done with school. I want you to get a job, <laughs> you know? Of course. So after college, even if you're just at home, you have your parents's gnarling and bickering down mm -hmm. your throat like oh, what are you going to do with yourself now what are you <laughs> going to do you should get a job you should mm -hmm. get this and all of that um so yeah you know the, it, which is interesting because there are a lot of cultural dynamics that plays in 
in different you know countries and things like that that also translates into how people go through life mm-hmm. from you know being teenagers to to adults right so that that's that's interesting i i never knew that about you but okay. you know yeah this is this is the first time that i'm hearing that i this see this is the first time that i'm hearing that <laughs> um let's look at the the next one being um you've been in china now mm-hmm. um and i before we started the podcast we actually had a very brief conversation about this yes which is that um studying chinese history mm-hmm studying Chinese language or Chinese anything abroad, for example, in your case, in the U.S., um, as opposed to studying this same thing here in China, do you think that there is a considerable difference? So in terms of, let's say, you and your other colleagues back home Mm -hmm. who are still in America but studying the same thing that you are, do you think that your time here in China will provide you with more depth um, in terms of understanding some of the things about this culture that you are studying? Um, one of my own teachers had told me that there is a large difference between uh, armchair historians, those that only research a place but never actually take the time to go there, mm. and field historians, those who are on the ground always looking for what is going to happen next in their area of interest. And I think that could not be more pronounced when it comes to China, especially since the West seems to have a way of morphing, perhaps not maliciously, mm. but morphing some ideas when it comes to Chinese culture and society. Mm. And history is no different in that case. For so many years, the West did not believe that the Shang dynasty existed until oracle bones were discovered. Though I should note that oracle bones were discovered and identified by a Western uh, Western anthropologist or was it a Western historian in the early 1900s. Mm. But that was the Westerners' proof that a dynasty that the Chinese had said existed for thousands of years actually existed. existed. And uh, the West did not believe it until they had hard physical proof. Okay, that's fine. That is the imperial method. I understand the reasoning. But then we come to the same case with the Shia dynasty, which is supposedly the first dynasty. We don't have any hard evidence of its existence, but we do have several cultures and several cultural areas. Uh, The Erlito, for instance. We have that as an idea of a place where the Shia may have actually been. And that stands up to reason with the old histories. So I would say there is a large difference in how Chinese history is taught abroad than what is taught in China itself. Mm. Uh, Chinese history also mainly focuses a lot on the older histories that came before. For some reason, many of these have not been translated into English, uh, not in any real measure. There's the Shiji, which in English has a much grander name, mm-hmm. Records of the Grand Historian, <laughs> while in Chinese it simply means Book of History. Oh. And uh, generally it is one of the finest history books written, but it has not been fully translated into English. And this is very unfortunate for those who are trying to learn more about Chinese history but don't have a degree in the Chinese language. It makes it very difficult because many of these more advanced works will reference works that have never been translated. So it becomes difficult for the scholars overseas who are simply studying the history, but not the language, Mm. to really proceed further. 
But as for the differences in the Chinese methodologies versus the Western methodologies, there are a number of differences. The Western methodologies seem to focus a lot more on imperialism. If it was there, it can be proven. If not, it needs to be ignored. While the Chinese historical method is more about what do our records say? How do we synthesize this to make a more logical set of events? It is reasonable to think that this is not how things happened 100%, but is the closest approximation to history that can be found. That much is clear, and I would say those are the main two differences between the Western historical model and the Eastern historical model. The Western historical model tries to look at it as an unbiased fashion, and I wouldn't say that the Chinese method is biased in any way, but it tries to look at it from both sides equally. Well, the Chinese method tries to combine them, and that probably has to do with its uh, provenance mm. of the Zizhi Tongjian, which is the comprehensive aid to government written in the 1200s. And mm. that was supposed to be a historian who was very moralistic, who wanted his emperor to become a better person. And that can be read in his works, but that work also has a large amount of historical relevance. It has conversations that have been lost. It has events that are only briefly mentioned in other historical works. The sad part about Chinese history is so much has been lost, whether through civil war or through trying to destroy their own culture with the Cultural Revolution, or dating back thousands of years to the original burning of books and burying of the scholars, and another warlord coming in destroying the last copies of those books that were on record. There's been so much knowledge lost in China that it's very unfortunate. So yes, that is uh, my hmm. answer to that question. Wow, that's a, that's a very in-depth uh, approach to, to that. But yeah, um, I think as well, if we look at, you know, let's, let's flip the coin mm -hmm. the other way around. Um, let's take a look at Chinese students, mm -hmm. right? Who, um, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this in depth um, yep. in, in, in a much later discussion. But, you know, if we flip it around as well, Chinese students or Chinese um, individuals generally mm -hmm. who want to learn English. Right. Do you think that learning English in China and learning English abroad, you know, is there going to be that much of a difference there there will be a difference right but the question is how much of a difference exactly does it make going abroad um you know just for language reasons mm. that's an interesting question i mean that's exactly what i tried to do three years ago and i learned a fair amount and then when i got back i tried to take uh more chinese classes and it was taught in a completely different style it was taught in a way to where you were learning Chinese that was applicable to the classroom and things that would rarely be seen uh, in real life. Yeah. It was all about classroom situations, this and that. But while I was here, we learned some actual useful things like how to buy things, um, ways to greet others more basic than ni hao and things like that. <laughs> ways that we could actually use the language in real life. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, we are in a place that speaks its own dialect. So sometimes what we learn does not apply itself outside of the university. Yeah. But it does allow us to speak with the other students here. Yeah. Now, 
Is that the same case when it comes to those who go overseas, when it comes to learning English? I do know that I try to make a lot of my English courses focus not so much on vocabulary or basic knowledge, but on ideas. Mm. And the idea is what I like my students to take away from each lesson. As long as they are able to take away the core of what a lesson was about, I think that the vocabulary is secondary. If they are able to take away grammar, great, but that's mm. not the main point. So yeah, you were going to finish with a thought that oh, yeah. you had. Um, if you still remember, do you still remember? Probably I was going to refer to what I saw of the Chinese students in my own university who oh, were yes. from yes. abroad. Yeah. I was one of their ambassadors. And uh, it seemed their life was so directed. Here, we are given a large amount of freedom to do as we will. I, I'm actually very shocked. Uh, China gets a very bad reputation for being controlling, not letting you do what you want. Exactly. But in America, many of the Chinese students were basically led by the nose to everywhere. They were only allowed to the mall twice a week or something. Um, they couldn't really go out of their own accord. And it was... It was very surprising that they treated these uh, Chinese students who were just, well, not the same age as us, we're kind of old for college <laughs> students, but the same college student uh, age, they treated them basically like middle schoolers or mm. high school children. And that just seemed almost patronizing. Mm. It was surprising to see that this is how my school decided to deal with this. A very... Yeah. Unfortunate, especially compared to the experience I had just had while here in China to where I was allowed free reign to basically do as we willed. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think I think that I think at the core of it anyways is um, it does help to sort of go abroad and learn a language. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, you know, interesting, I had a conversation with um, with someone Yesterday, um, his name's Larry. Larry oh. owns um, a firm here in China. Oh, he's Chinese American, if yeah. that makes sense, mm -hmm. you know. And I asked him about how does he feel in terms of the language difference um, whenever he tries to, you know, carry out his business or he's trying to communicate with someone or even in coaching people, you know, to communicate better. Yeah. How does he handle that fear factor or that discomfort that, you know, you often get with um, Chinese students trying to speak English or trying to right. be better at English? And one of the things Larry said that, you know, I thought was interesting was he said that um, Chinese people are more critical of Chinese people who speak English. Mm. And this is what he meant. So in all the time that he's been in China. Yeah. He's never had a foreigner say, oh, Larry, your English is not good. Mm. It's mostly coming from Chinese people who major in English, mm. you know. Yeah. And so there's that factor of I have to, you know, I have to say this right. I have to um, say this in a certain way. I have to sound a certain way yeah. to be correct. Um, technically, yes, but contextually, that's not true, right? I mean, what are you? What, what's your opinion of that? What do you think? That is an interesting point. I have basically learned that you 
cannot lead by a carrot on a stick. Yeah. You unfortunately need to lead by the whip. Uh, that is why 30% of my grade for my students is participation. And that requires yeah. them to speak during yeah. class because after all, it is an English speaking class. Yeah. And I can't just let them do well on their homework. They also need to have the courage to participate during class. If they're unable to do this, I cannot give them a good grade. Because so much of English, well, so much of any language, yeah. is proper communication in more than just planned scenarios. Yeah. Spontaneous speech is necessary for any real growth. But, yes, that is a problem to where some people might be judged for their inability to speak but i encourage all of my students to speak and no matter how good someone is i will always find something to correct so no one can stand hot heads and tails above everyone else everyone, heads and shoulders excuse me heads and shoulders <laughs> above everyone else there's always something to correct and i don't view this as being critical but merely trying to improve their ability yeah one main thing is the genders, and there's a reason for that, because as you know, in Chinese, it's he, ta, yeah. she, ta, ta, it, ta. And when they go to speak English, they get those three quite mixed up. Mm. And that is why it is very important for them to practice gender pronouns again and again. It's something I still see within some of my students. Yeah. So, yes, I think... I think the critical, <clears throat> the critical feedback is important, but not to be snobbish, but yes. merely in the means of improvement. Yeah. Everyone should always be striving to be better than they are. Than they are. I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. And also because um, we've worked on a, on a number of projects together mm -hmm. and um, we've seen how um, the level of English, mm -hmm. you know, across the board. Yeah. We've seen what is consistent in terms of, oh, this is a development area. Mm. And I do agree that, um, you know, the use of gender mm -hmm. is something that, you know, um, over time will get better. Right. Over time will get better. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Great times to see how um, there's so much, there's so much expected around the English language mm. in terms of um, the Chinese people, you know. Right. You find a lot of schools, um, parents paying so much for their kids to learn English, yes. you know? And you find that some people learn English for so long, but they never get past the the reading, writing. Mm. They're okay with that. You know, the technical part, they're okay. Yeah. But once it comes to speaking and actually using these things, you know, um, that fear kicks in. Yes. It kicks in. I think part of that comes from the Chinese schooling system. The Chinese schooling system focuses, as we had heard from Ye Lao Shi, mm. uh, so much of the Chinese schooling system focuses on reading and writing and considers speaking and listening to be secondary, if not tertiary. Mm. And this creates a large disconnect when they are expected to speak and listen once they reach the higher levels of high school, well, I guess secondary school, and graduate school if they are unable to put forth the basic ideas that they have been learning since they were children what hope would they have moving forward that is why when i studied chinese i always made it a a goal 
of not just looking at the hansu. I needed to know how it was used. I needed to know how the word was properly said in yeah. what context. And I think it needs to be all four. It can't be two, and it can't be two. It needs to be all four. It needs to be comprehensive from very early on till college and so on. And that is something that is lacking in the current school system. There's a focus on one and not the other. At the end of the day, these things will get better. You know, it will get better. So let's let's bring it back to the Chinese culture. Uh-huh. Um, Chinese culture then uh-huh. and Chinese culture now. Yes. Do you think there is a difference? Has an you know, as a Chinese scholar, um, as a Chinese culture scholar, do you think that there's a difference between the Asian Chinese? Um, way of life or the the way that society functioned then and modern day China? In many ways, yes. In some ways, no. The Chinese people are still very much steeped in tradition and there's nothing wrong with that. They have been able to keep intact that thread of culture and history that has been cut so many times in the West. And this gives their culture a unique vibrancy that has been lost in many places in the West as globalization, well, I don't want to say globalization, but as, how would I phrase this? Because it's not multiculturalism. That's not the problem. The problem here is that they are ignoring their own histories because something bad happened in it. They want to pretend it didn't exist and therefore they don't own up to it and toss it away. And in so doing, they lose their own culture. Mm. Such a thing has never really happened in China. They have always been willing to look at the mistakes of the past and how they can improve in the present. The Chinese people for thousands of years viewed history as a cycle, a virtuous cycle, one of the mandate of heaven. The idea that if the empire is ruled well, it will continue to do well, continue to thrive and prosper. Great people will be born And so society will improve. But as time goes on, all things must fade, and so must every dynasty. And this itself is not a terrible thing. Yes, it's terrible to live through it, but it is expected. And in no way is it a breaking of society. It is simply the next part of the wheel. And that is how Chinese culture has survived, because it is not a breaking every single time a new dynasty started. It is just the next part of another wheel. The West never had that view. The West tore itself down, the fall of the Roman Empire to the Byzantines, and the Byzantine, the fall of that to the Ottomans, and the Ottoman fall in 1911. All of these have been relegated to history with hardly any lessons learned, as nowadays we are so focused on the ideas of democracy and making things more fair for everyone while losing the core of what it means to be a culture, what it means to have varied governments, we are beginning to learn that democracy may not exactly be the best and end all of government. And that is something that needs to be, need to be acknowledged, I believe. Mm, interesting, interesting. Um, I think that, yes, you, you do touch on a fine point there, which says that um, in terms of the translation of several Chinese dynasties. Mm-hmm. It has never been about, oh, this stops here. Yes. Right? It's it's constantly been a wheel 
It continues from this point to this point to this point. And, you know, that has helped preserve this culture for what now? Over 5,000 years or 4,000 years? Uh, probably. We don't actually know when the Yellow Emperor oh, lived. Okay. If he actually existed at all. Uh, the Erlato culture, if it was legitimate, would be around 3100 BCE. So, yeah, around 5,000 5, years. 5,000 years. So, I mean, and it's also just logical to... Um, to acknowledge that, you know, something that is older, mm -hmm. something that is more matured um, would definitely be more um, grounded, mm. you know, than something that is um, less, um, less, you know, that has been available for that, you know, mm -hmm. for that same amount of time. And I say this in comparison of Chinese history mm -hmm. and the history of the West. Yes. The West has a relatively short history. And that is, like you said, it's always as soon as one civilization surpasses the next, it disrupts and yeah. wipes out the previous one. Mm -hmm. um, with Chinese history, there's been that continuity and, you know, they've been able to build this extensive knowledge of things. You know, even if we go back into the great Chinese inventions, mm -hmm. you know, and even to now, you know, um, there's a lot of that continuity that you still see in modern day China. Um, but what I was um, what I was actually looking at more was in terms of, um, let's say, societal values, mm -hmm. right? Um, Asian China, um, your parents had a lot of say on almost everything that you do. Correct. You know. Um, the person you get married to, the kind of job that you do, and things like that, you know? And even though that a lot of those things still hold true today, we've started seeing some deviation from that. So now we have more young people moving away from the traditional approach of we'll get married, start a family, to, I don't want to get married. I want to get a job. I want to stay on my own. I want to be independent, mm -hmm. you know? So um, in that regard, that's, you know, do you think there's been a deviation from the historical um, perspective as opposed to the modern day um, young generation now? It's interesting you bring up the concept of filial piety because I was never really sure how powerful it still is. You bring up a fantastic point, though, when it comes to family. And, well, this is kind of damaging China in the long term as people refuse to get married and have children. It has caused a bit of a upside-down pyramid in yes. terms of population growth, yeah. which could be a problem for China in the coming years, but so many other places as well. Yeah. Japan has it worse. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, when it comes to filial piety... I was quite surprised to see how much respect the students that I have still have for their parents, despite them being so far away. And the example I want to give is something that did not require them to say their parents at all, but so many of them did. I asked them who, uh, well, it was for a class based around attraction and beauty. Who was the most beautiful person you've ever seen? Who's the most handsome man you've ever seen? And, uh, it all, a lot of the students, 
in the first class I did this because I prevented them from saying this next time was my mom and dad are the most beautiful people in the world. Wow. Okay. So that showed me how much deep respect, unbidden respect was still within the hearts of the Chinese people for their parents. Interesting. So I do not know if that is going to ever change. Um, possibly it shouldn't. It is yeah. something beautiful to see yes. basically adults still calling their mom and dad the most precious people in the world to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I do agree that, you know, it's one of the most beautiful things about the culture, the respect for um, not just the parents, you know, the elders, anyone oh, who is much more... Um, who's older or mm -hmm. has um, a higher social status, there's that respect for them. You mm -hmm. find that even teachers, you know, yes. they hold a high um, status in the society. Yes. Um, which is a good thing. Um, Very. You know, but um, I remember that we spoke about something um, mm -hmm. on culture. Uh -huh. is that um, a culture does not go away. No. It just tries to evolve mm -hmm. so that it sort of... Um, attributes itself to the reality of the modern day society. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, how do you think the, you know, the Chinese culture, you know, um, has evolved to accommodate the need of the modern day society? The traditional Chinese belief is extremely uh, versatile, despite what many people say it is able to adapt and is able to thrive, and it is doing so now. Um, the current president, President Xi Jinping, uh, has focused more on an idea of traditionalism, pushing back against many of the old ideas which brought mm. about the Cultural Revolution, Revolution, which caused untold amounts of loss. But he is pushing back against these ideas and trying to bring back an ideal of traditional culture. And I think there is a lot of strength to this. As I'd said, the old ways are very versatile and are able to adapt, but it is a matter of how that adaptation is taken. The reason why this is falling apart in the West is because belief in gods and the supernatural is starting to fade. Yeah. But in the East, it was never based upon that. It was based upon the idea of reciprocity, filial piety, loyalty, benevolence, benevolence, not because some God told you to do it to get good things, mm. but because it makes society better. Mm. And because these ideas are universal and timeless, they will be able to stand so on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I do. I do agree with you um, um, in that regard. Um, you know, I had, I, I was, I was saying something to someone the other day in one of the previous ep episodes that I did, mm -hmm. um, I mentioned that a lot of what people know about China is what the West says about China. Yeah. But then you can't really blame those people because China does not necessarily put itself out there like, oh, look at us, you know? And, um, there's, there's an historical reference to that. There's a reason why. Um, the Chinese culture is very modest. Yeah. You know, modesty is something that um, is held in, you know, with high regards. Yes. You have to be modest, you know, mm -hmm. and all of that. So China, I feel like China does not necessarily want to, despite them, you know, the impressive economic development and everything. 
Um, China is not looking to say, oh, look at us. Now we're here, mm -hmm. right? Um, which also might be the downside to people not knowing much about China because who's really telling the story, you know? Um, so maybe um, one way might be to um, sort of start really talking about China mm -hmm. from a Chinese perspective, which is... Um, Every well, this is what they've said about us, yeah. but this is what it is. And um, I don't know if you're aware of what just recently happened, the the boycott of major brands yes. because of what happens in Xinjiang. Yes. What's interesting is most of what people think happened in Xinjiang or what mm -hmm. people in the West think happened right. is what the Western government has said. Yes. You know? And I think in some ways I have had some conversations with some Chinese people mm -hmm. um, on a lot of spectrums, you know, educated people, non-educated people, they feel differently, you know, they mm -hmm. feel differently about that situation. And the whole term of, oh, it's a genocide yeah. has come across as, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree in that case. When that kind of hyperbole is used, it uh, it doesn't help the situation at all. And uh, many of my students had said it is an attack on the Chinese character. And uh, it's a very complicated and diverse subject with a lot of different views. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is difficult to determine what is true and what is false. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because... Each side has their own benefits of saying this or that. Absolutely. Especially Absolutely. as the West seems to want to try and isolate China, since China was the first to recover from the epidemic. Yeah. yeah. And in so doing, they want to try and uh, possibly, do through these boycotts and sanctions and everything set up, hurt the economy enough so that it levels off to where the rest them of, reach back uh, up i mean i think the key thing to know is that um the chinese culture um if you really want to know about china mm -hmm. you your best bet is to understand the culture yes um, undoubtedly yeah and you would find a lot of reference in its history mm -hmm. so if you start from there you find a lot of um, relationship with how modern-day China runs. To add one more point before we finish that. Oh, okay. Uh, you had said that other places don't quite have an accurate view. That is true, but China has tried to change that in recent years with the Confucius Institutes all around the world. Mm. And the Confucius Institutes teach language, culture, uh, yeah, that's it, language and culture, <laughs> of China to try mm. and get their view across. Mm. And Western governments see this as trying to trying to use propaganda to put forth their view. Because remember, China is communist and most of the West is not. Mm. Therefore, they view these kinds of things as soft, uh, soft brainwashing rather than any kind of any kind of benevolent action. And there is a prosaic motive. There is no doubt about that. But it does ignore the good that these places do. True. true. Mm. Very, very good. Very good point. Very good point. Um, so let's go to you as a teacher mm -hmm. here in the university. Right. Um, 
you've been teaching English now. I mean, okay, let, let's 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 take you back to mm-hmm. how did you start teaching English um, in Asia? Because I remember that you also mm-hmm. um, went to Thailand for a year, one year, yes, yes, to teach well, one English. school year <laughs> <laughs> to teach English. So mm-hmm. how how did you get into Joe the teacher? Okay, so I had just finished my degree back home at Lancaster in Millersville University. And I wanted to teach in China. And I wanted to teach history. I went to my international studies professor and we looked at the situation and he said, unfortunately, without two years of education, I do not think you can teach in China, but you already have one year under your belt here. So I'm going to let you uh, meet up with one of my friends who works in Thailand. Uh, The reason that my international studies teacher knew so much about Thailand is because he was an expert mm. on the place. Oh, okay. And wow. I guess he wanted me to try and uh, absorb some of that love, which oh. I kind <laughs> of did in some ways, perhaps not in others. Oh. Uh, but generally he said, I have friends in Thailand. I'll be able to help you find a job. And that's exactly what happened. He was able to help me find a job as an English teacher. The... Mm, the place was a bit underfunded in oh, many ways. Okay. And um, the students required a lot of work. Some of them. Mm. Some of them were excellent. I was very surprised at their level. Others, I must have been their first English teacher uh, wow. because some of it was very, very basic. Wow. And uh, I had actually learned quite a bit about teaching language. In college, I had taken... Before I decided to be a history major, I was thinking of being an English professor. Before I saw how many rules there were to English that I could not possibly understand. (laughs) So I took what I could from that, then changed my major to history. To history. And there I found my true longing. So um, from from Thailand, how how did the, you know, back Mm -hmm. to China to, you know, coming back to Jufei and, Mm -hmm. and all of that? Well, it, it's all basically a stroke of luck. Uh, my friend, and she was helping me uh, look for jobs around China. She had been here as a student for several years. And it turned out that, well, people were unable to get back to China because of the uh, epidemic. And they were in sore need of foreign teachers. So I was in the right place at the right time. She asked the OIC office... The OIC office uh, set me up with an interview, and I must have done well, and they hired me. Mm. And that's basically the story. (laughs) I have been a very lucky and fortunate person throughout my life. (laughs) Interesting. Well, you've also been a very hardworking person, Joe. Um, That much I know. Um, So taking it to the classroom, taking it to the classroom, Mm -hmm. how would you consider your approach to teaching your students? What do you think works? Um, What do you think, you know, you can improve on in terms of, okay, this is is how I execute Mm -hmm. so that I can get better results than what, you know, it was. Mm. That is a great question. When I started teaching pedagogy, I was completely lost. Uh, learning things from books and learning things from lectures and all that is very different from being in a classroom, being in front of a class. And I had only taught uh, a basic history course in America. So I was completely unprepared to teach 
English in many ways, but when I got here, I had a better understanding because of my time in Thailand. Here, though, I had to teach online for a semester, mm. and oh, that was a new experience. <laughs> it was. I think it went relatively well, though. Uh, we basically communicated as often as we could. The homework was not too demanding. We mainly focused, well, actually, we mainly focused on a paideia kind mm. of teaching method. Do you know what that is? No, no, no I'm not familiar with that. A paideia is where a teacher presents an idea and then that idea goes around the class before it comes back to the teacher to give some closing thoughts. Oh, okay. And okay. this is my preferred method of teaching. Uh, when a student stops speaking, I will reiterate what they said, add on to their ideas, and then allow the next person to speak. Overall, that idea worked really well online. And once I got to the classroom, I tried it, and it also worked to a fair extent. It didn't work as well as I had hoped. Mm. That's when I realized I needed to change some things. I needed to add more examples. I needed to give greater, greater credence to mm. what the students were actually saying compared to what they were saying, saying. To get to reading between the lines, so to speak. And in some cases, that was easy. In other cases, not so much, to where I would just reiterate what they had said, mm. uh, to show that I have full understanding, and also to explain to the class what they were saying. Overall, though, as time has gone on, I think I've been able to streamline my process, so it's a lot less stressful for me, and a lot more, well, it's not easier on the students at all, mm. um, because they need to communicate. That is what this all comes down to. Building the confidence for the students to communicate. I will introduce a topic. I will give them two to three minutes to do whatever research they need, to write down whatever small notes. And then once those t that time is up, I will then ask for some feedback on that topic. Generally, I'll receive quite a number of responses. Sometimes I need to cut it off before I move to the next topic because there are so many responses that People want, to give. people want to give. So it shows that it works, but also 30% of their grade is participation, and they are well aware of this. So it also comes down when push comes to shove. Mm. A gentle approach does not always work. Sometimes you need to be strict, and this is definitely one of those times. When it comes to speaking classes, people need to speak. Outside of just major assignments, outside of homework, they need to give their thoughts unbidden within the class. Mm. That, that's that's interesting. Um, so let's look at it from this perspective, just in case, you know, mm -hmm. there's someone um, who's also, you know, a teacher and willing to learn from your um, your time as a teacher here. Uh, what do you think are the major challenges with teaching English um, to university students, undergraduates, mm. you know, not kids now, because teaching kids, it, it's a whole different system. It's a whole different system and a whole different discipline. Yes. Yeah. But to, you know, undergrads, uh -huh. to teenagers and, yes. you know, people just getting into university. Right. What is the major challenge? You know, if you were to bring it down to one or two things, what would you consider as the major challenge um, to teaching English in that regard? Major challenge? Something I never really thought about because I consider my time here as a blessing compared to uh, trying to teach younger children. Oh. Because as you are aware, I have a fairly high vocabulary and I find it difficult to uh, 
lower that vocabulary <laughs> for younger children. That was one of the main difficulties I had in Thailand of simplifying my language. But uh, here I use not advanced vocabulary, but normal vocabulary for my students to be able to understand it. Mm. And in so doing, there are very few um, there are very few problems in cohesion or coherence that the students have with me as far as I'm aware. Okay. Um, but as for actual challenges, probably the demands that are expected of college students. I can't just give them a listen to this, fill in the blank, thanks. No, that, that doesn't work. That is not acceptable. I need to give them actual assignments, things that ask them about their past, things that ask them about their thoughts, ways that they are able to take situations and change them. That is why I am a large fan of role play, of having the students role play certain events, having them role play ideas and ideals to be able to make these ideas clearer to themselves and they will be able to show full understanding of said idea. So I think the demands placed upon the students is probably also a somewhat a demand placed on me because these role plays are four minutes long and I have 210 uh, sophomore students. Wow. So I have them in groups of four to six, completely up to them. So I get a lot of uh, video that I need to watch uh. throughout the weeks. <laughs> so that is a lot of time. A lot of time True. that is much more difficult than just looking at a basic paper. Mm. So I would say that is probably the largest challenge. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so let's let's go to a, let's go to a juicy one, Joe. Mm -hmm. Social interactions. Ah, social interactions in China. Mm. Um, and I mean, we'll look at this from two perspectives, right? Mm -hmm. From a Chinese person to a Chinese person, yeah. the social interaction, and maybe this does not cover the full spectrum mm -hmm. of the social environment um, because, well, our current environment does not necessarily, you know, allow us yes. to, to see everything. Our environment is college-based. Yes. So let's say social interaction in mm -hmm. college. You know, mm -hmm. let, let's be more um, direct. Okay. You know? In your experience, right? you know, what is your understanding of social interaction of young Chinese people, mm. of young Chinese people? I haven't really seen that much of a difference from what I've seen in the West. Uh, okay. Uh, maybe even more, uh, maybe even more caring and touchy feeling, so mm. to speak, than what yeah. you might find in the West. In the West. Uh, because the West has a whole stigma against that. But. Uh, here in China, I don't see that stigma. I see boys hugging boys, holding hands, yeah. things like that, because that yeah. is not considered meaning anything in Chinese culture outside of being good friends. friends. Yeah. So I would say that the relations that I have seen are closer than what I have viewed in the West. Yeah, I definitely do agree, which is why, um, if you remember, I said that we in the West sort of tend to have more friends than we need. Mm. I think that Chinese relationships have more depth maybe, than um, the social interactions that we have in the West. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like you said, you know, you find people hugging each other. Yeah. And they do not necessarily give that sort of attention to just anybody. True. 
you know? Um, but also considering that, you know, you don't have so many friends. You just have, oh, this, I have three friends and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm willing to give them my all, yes. you know? So um, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting how that approach goes. Um, it's interesting. Now let's look at social interaction with a foreigner. Uh-huh. With a foreigner. What is your experience so far mm-hmm. um, in that regard? As a foreigner? Yes, as, as a, a foreigner. As a foreigner, as the Chinese treat me? Uh, kind of like, not you in particular, mm-hmm. more like, um, okay, let's say you in particular, because, you know, you would know um, for you, yes. you would know that much more accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, your social interaction with Chinese um, people, right? you know, how has that been? What has the experience been like? Generally, very, very friendly. I want to provide an anecdote. Uh, a couple months ago, when I was uh, setting up the midterm for the class, I went to the printing shop uh, right down the way. And uh, after an almost contentious way of uh, not getting it for free, <laughs> <laughs> because I was told originally by the school that we could get it for free, turned out not at that particular shop, but oh, oh. well, too late. So there was a bit of a back and forth there. And I paid the money, left in a bit of a huff. <laughs> and uh, I left my wallet there. Oh. And I didn't realize that. And I got most of the way back to my apartment before I realized that, oh no, I left my wallet somewhere. Wow. And I went to all the places that I've been to until I realized, oh no, I must have left it at the uh, print shop. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, so I went back to the print shop and the fellow ran up to me and said, oh, you left this, you left this here. And, uh, I thanked him very much, uh, offered, look quickly through the wallet, saw nothing was missing, offered to give him 100 yuan. He would not take it whatsoever. And uh, yeah, that showed me really the heart of the people, that this man could have robbed me blind, he could have taken my identity, and there would have been no proof that it was him whatsoever, because I had no idea where I left my wallet. But no, he was kind enough despite our almost contentious uh, feedback earlier, uh, he was kind enough to not touch any of my stuff and was already willing to give it back the moment that he saw me coming. So yeah, uh, the worst experience I've had in China has not actually been from a Chinese person. Oh, okay. It was actually uh, at a bar. I generally don't go to bars, you know this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was someone's birthday and all the foreign teachers went out and uh, I decided to tag along with them. Samantha's birthday? No. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, it was Samantha's okay. birthday, I believe. Okay. No, no. No? Because I, w- I was at Samantha's birthday. That no, was no. It wasn't Samantha's birthday. Oh, okay. It was at uh, the owner's granddaughter? was having her birthday and i'm not entirely sure why we were going there but in any event we were there all the same and um there was this guy who uh was a bit drunk already um Mm. and he was uh kind of acting a bit how do i phrase this acting a bit Drunk? <laughs> yeah, acting a bit drunk around a lady, and I tried oh. to nudge him away. And uh, he kept on coming back and all of that. And oh. then uh, eventually, uh, 
cursed me out for being an American. Wow. And uh, that was that was great. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> My worst experience in China has not been from any Chinese person. It was from uh, someone who felt that just by my birth, I was talking down to them. Wow. Wow. That is, that's something. Mm. Oh, that's something. Um, I, I mean, yeah, some people are just downright nasty. Mm. Some people, because I don't see what, um, first of all, that was improper. What, whatever this gentle person was doing, um, but at the same time, I don't see why you know you as an American is in the conversation in the first place. You yeah. know, but it just goes back to what we were saying before. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was saying that um, people already have pre-existing ideas mm -hmm. about other people. Yes. And they just look for things that sort of confirms that um, that perception. Confirmation bias. Yes. So as soon as anything goes off, they go, oh, it has to be that thing. You are this and that. Yep. You know? Um, but yeah, I, I also do agree that, um, and perhaps, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people mm -hmm. and people have had different experiences. Um, personally for me, um, my experiences have been, I, I think I've also been very lucky mm -hmm. that the people that have been around me, the Chinese people that I've interacted with, mm -hmm. they've, they've been amazing. You know, you know, Archie, Oh yes. you know, Dingye, you know, um, uh, you, we, we've been around a couple of people together, yes. you know? Um, and it's been, it's been amazing. It has it's been amazing. Truly. So I think that it's just a function of, you know, one, um, you as an individual as well. Mm -hmm. I think that I think on, on a grand scale, the truth is irrespective of wherever you are, the good people and there are bad people, mm. you know, some people are, they mean well, others, they don't, Yes, you know? So as much as possible, I think you just have to try to surround yourself with, people that you know that, oh, okay, they mean well for mm -hmm. me as a person. Now, notwithstanding, there are situations that um, you cannot control, mm. you know, that you cannot control. And I usually tell people that in instances like that, how I approach that is I remind myself that I'm in control of how I feel. Yes. And I should not give someone else the authority to impact or make me feel a certain way. Um, it doesn't negate what the situation is, mm -hmm. but it helps me deal with it and it helps me, you know, hold my peace of mind. Right. You know, um, so yeah, I think that, you know, on a, on a general scale, social interactions, um, they've, they've been good. They've mm -hmm. been good and they're getting better. You know, hopefully people learn from these conversations mm -hmm. that, you know, that we're having to just sort of, Start to, you know, maybe these things are in your blind spot. You know, mm. a blind spot is necessarily something that, you know, you don't consider mm, when right. you're looking at something. Um, I think that in terms of blind spots, speaking about blind spot, mm -hmm. before I came to China, right? you know, and I mean, this was something that was propelled by the movies in mm -hmm. Hollywood. Right. You know, 
I, I don't know if you had the same experience growing up, but growing up as a child, I used to watch a lot of Chinese Kung Fu movies. Hmm. And I, you know, up until I was maybe 15, I thought that everyone in China knew Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Hmm. I did. And I am very sure that a lot of people still believe that. Wow. Back in the West mm. or outside of China, you know? Probably. And, uh, you know, you, you don't really get to know those things unless you come here. Right. Unless you come here. True. Unless you True. come here. Um, so hopefully people start to really change their perception about China and really start to see China for, you know, for what it is and, mm -hmm. and not, a, not a propagation from, from the West. Um, from the yeah. West. Um, so also, you've been an American, Joe. Yes. You've been an American. Mm -hmm. We are well aware of the current situation with China and mm -hmm. America. Um, how does that, you know, what is your opinion of that? It's complicated. It is. It is. Um, I'm putting you on the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> America feels that it has a legitimate grievance against China because of its trade practices. Granted, those trade practices seem to be about a trade imbalance, that we are taking more things from China than we are giving it, therefore the import-export is not equal. And in so doing, uh, America feels that China should either reduce the amount they export or whether America should lower the amount. And this led to the trade war, which went absolutely nowhere and went bad on America's end, while China seemed to weather it just fine. Generally, though, my own thoughts are that both nations are just looking out for their own interests and doing whatever they can in order to propagate their message. No one is right in this case. It's all about economics. Anything they say that is regards to virtue, morality, policy, it all comes down to economics. How can we increase our GDP? There's nothing more really to that. It's not a philosophical argument. It doesn't, it's not a political argument either. It's mainly all comes down to how can we continue to make as much money as possible. So since China's main market is America, and America's main export partner, uh, import partner, is China, it, uh, it comes to reason that there will be this discussion that needs to be made. Neither side is right or wrong. They, they will use any kind of means uh, in terms of diplomacy and words to try and get their meaning across, to use propaganda to push their message, but overall, this is an economic issue, nothing else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I do agree with you. Um, at the end of the day, it's just both countries trying to look out for each other, which is okay. Looking out for Ooh. themselves. For, for themselves. My bad, for themselves. I wish they were looking out for each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wish they were looking out for each other. Mm. Um, but yes, they're looking out for themselves. Mm. They're looking out for themselves. Um, also, how, how, how does that, you know, how does that, um, the fact that you are in China, mm -hmm. um, interactions with your, so I do not know how many, you know, how much of a, um, a connection you have mm -hmm. with people from back home being in China and things like that. 
Um, do you think that there's been a change in how they see you or address you or think about you um, relative to you being in China or having so much of, um, you know, Chinese input um, in you? Do, do you think that has influenced their interactions with you? When it comes to my uh, college teachers, only in a positive way. Uh, because they continue to see me growing, they continue to see me striving, and they only want me to push myself further. Uh, there is one teacher uh, who was always my favorite. She insists that I come back to America to do my master's degree, but there's no oh. way. It's just out of money at that point, and there's no real master's degree programs in America for what I am looking for. Uh my friends, on the other hand, my friends are my brothers. Quite mm. literally, we are sworn brothers. Xiongdi. Uh, mm. And um, one African-American, whoops, one African-American fellow and one, um, one Caucasian fellow. And they have been my best friends since I was 12 years old. So they have seen me grow up, change, and become the person I am now. Me mm. being in China hasn't changed anything, anything in terms of our relationship. Oh, that's that's great. And I, I think interestingly, on the other hand, for me, it's um, it's been the other way. Oh. My family knew next to nothing about China before I came here. Mm -hmm. um, I remember that even then, you know, my mom used to always say that, are you sure you want to go to China? <laughs> we don't have anybody there. We don't know anyone mm. who's going to look out for you. Do you know what? You know, you know, and this she had so much worries, <laughs> mm. you know. And now it's, it's at a point where my family is like, okay, we want to see what's going on in China. Right. You know, um, my uncle came here from Calgary, Canada in 2019, actually. Mm -hmm. um, just in a case of, okay, if Tyre is still here, uh -huh. it means that this place is, you know, then it's good. Yeah. And he said, you know what? Okay. I want to, I want to see, mm -hmm. I want to see, you know, and he came here. Um, one of the things that really was fascinating to him mm -hmm. was the construction work. Oh yes. And the infrastructures that mm. China had. Right. Oh my, it still blows. He, I remember that um, while we were, he was staying at hotel mm -hmm. and I was at my apartment. Whenever mm -hmm. I went over to, you know, check up on him and everything. He would tell me how he would stare at the, you know, the trucks that usually wash the road. Yeah. He found it so amazing. <laughs> and he kept saying like, there has to be a reason why maybe, you know, there has to be a reason why, mm -hmm. you know, they keep doing this every single day to him. It felt like it was more of a technological thing. Mm -hmm. um, maybe preserving the concrete or whatever. But when I spoke to, I actually asked some people and they just said, we're just washing the road. Yeah. And he's like, he should, I mean, how is it that simple? <laughs> how is it that simple? You know? So I think that me being here, mm -hmm. I have in some way created some sort of enlightenment mm -hmm. to um, my immediate family around this part of the world. Mm -hmm. Because traditionally my family has always been from either you know our circle is nigeria yep. the uk and canada yep you know 
anywhere anywhere outside of that <laughs> it's like we don't know anybody there you know you really sure you want to go there mm. you know and You're now a trailblazer I, you know i i think so i think so <laughs> joe i think so i'm, I'm a trailblazer right you know um so in in that regard in that regard i think it's one of the things that i'm really proud of and mm. it's just not saying that oh um it's 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 a it's grand no mm. you know um, the realities of China is what I tell them. Yes. And they appreciate that, you know, just like every country, um, there, there are things that you can look out for, the things that you can do for yourself, the things that mm -hmm. you can build. And all that opportunity is right here in China as well. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Regardless of what, uh, what thing you wish to look for, what you're striving for, Whatever you are trying to do in life, there is a place for it here in China. Absolutely. It is developing at a rapid pace with endless construction. Absolutely. <laughs> endless construction, infrastructure that continues to be built up and up, while at the same time not destroying the environment. Yes. Uh, it can't quite be seen. But right outside our window, there are trees among trees within the area that we are in. And even as you go into the city, it's just one road. Next to that road are endless amounts of forests. Yes. So though we are in the middle of a city, the greenery of life has never been uh, diminished. Yes. And that is something that China realized that it needed to change in, I believe, the late 80s when they started to realize they were making concrete jungles and death traps. Mm. And that is when they really started to rethink their approach. When many of these trees were planted was in the late 80s because they had realized that things needed to change. Otherwise, they were slowly suffocating themselves. themselves. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. China, you know, um, economically, it's, 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 it's good to see where they're at now. Mm. Um, even paying attention to the environment is also something that it's priority for um, not just the government on every level. Even yes. if you go to a friend's house, mm -hmm. you are more likely to find a plant. Yes, you know, yes. just green, encouraging, encouraging all of that. Mm -hmm. So it, it's 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 great to see that. It's great to see that. Um, so let, let's talk about um, um, you will be in China for. It's safe to estimate that you'd still be here for the next two years. Yes, because I do plan to get my master's degree. Oh, okay. So, future plans. Mm -hmm. Future plans, Joe. Yes. What 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 are you working on? What are your plans for the foreseeable future in China? Currently, I am working on a historical project. Uh, it's very complicated. I'm not going to really go into it, but it deals mainly with Confucius and what influenced him. I did a report on this in college, and I'm continuing to make it uh, more congruent, more cohesive, and build upon that basic research that I did back then. With all of the new knowledge I'm able to attain now. Mm. Granted, I still need to improve my Chinese a significant <laughs> amount to be able to read these works in their base language. Mm. But there are still some works in English that I would, that I am also reading on mm. Chinese history. Mm. Uh, and while moving forward, I would like to focus more on this project. And once I have my master's degree, though, I plan to go back to America to get my uh, doctorate 
to get my doctorate in ancient Chinese history. While here, I can get my master's in Chinese history. But I know there are a lot of good programs in the States. Well, not a lot. There's about four good <laughs> programs in the States for ancient Chinese history. And that is my main focus. Because I feel that the base of the culture can still be found in today's culture and how that influences the world today. And how these basic ideas can still be seen within the people in our modern times. Mm. Um, in any event, once I have my doctorate degree, I'm hoping to be a bridge between the East and the West. Someone who has had Eastern uh, methodologies taught to them, as well as someone who has had Western methodologies taught to them. Historiography between the East and West are very different, as I mentioned earlier. So if I am able to combine them and act kind of as a bridge between these two and possibly translate some works that have never been translated or haven't been translated for a hundred years, mm. I think I would feel very satisfied with the course of my life. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic, Joe. That is fantastic. Um, that's going to be a long, <laughs> it's yes. a long road ahead. It but is, it is. If there's one thing I know, I know that you can do it. <laughs> well, you, thank you. You can, you can do it. I have and, always strived. <laughs> and you say something that I find amazing, mm -hmm. um, which is something that you don't hear from a lot of people, which is in your field, mm -hmm. you are striving to be the connection, yeah. the bridge between the East and the West. Rightly, as you've mentioned, um, there are some documents that have not even been touched. Yeah. They haven't been translated. Correct. You know, and the amount of information in that document might even change the perspective of the West regarding Chinese history or anything in general. Maybe. Is that maybe? Okay. okay. <laughs> I would never want to imagine. Well, I would never dare to think that my work would have such a wide reaching effect, but merely to provide a different theory Mm. on different ideas okay well we never know joe we never know <laughs> we never know we never know perhaps we we never know we never know so uh yeah it's it's uh it's 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 been a great it's been a great conversation mm -hmm. but um eventually we'll all have to go home and yeah. leave china so if you think about china mm -hmm. if you were to leave china today mm. What is one thing that you would absolutely miss about China? Definitely the culture itself. Mm. I find within the culture a splendid tranquility that is lost in the West. There are many ideas bubbling under the surface, yes, mm. but these ideas don't lash out as they do in the West. And that is not a problem when it comes to the tranquil idea of harmony. The tranquil idea of harmony is central to the Chinese character. That idea is gone in the West, for better or worse. They focus so much on their own problems, their own views, and don't think about how it affects others, basically. Whether they are neo-Nazis or whether they are radical left, there is such a divide in the West that simply doesn't exist here. You can be sure that while walking down the street that people will be harmonious in their actions and in their thoughts. There isn't a bubbling hate underneath mm. for the world, beneath their veneer. There is a sense of passion and pride in what they do and to move forward on that path as one people, as one nation. 
But that's not so much the case anymore in the West. People are no longer think of themselves so much as being from one nation, but being from one quasi-idea. And this creates so much division that can be so easily played upon by the right players. Mm. And that is what I think I will definitely miss about China when I return home, is the endless bickering that comes from politics. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well... Thank you for coming on the show, Joe. It's It's been a great pleasure. It Hope- has been an absolute pleasure for me as well, Kyle. <laughs> Hopefully we can have more sessions like this where, you know, we can just, we can expand more on, on these cultural ideas and just, you know, challenge ourselves, challenge our perspectives mm. um, to better provide more information the, in the best way that we possibly can. Of course. Um, you know, for, for our listeners. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I look forward to your projects and I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you. You as well, Ty. All right. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening in today. And thank you very much to Joe for coming on the show. Remember that my name is Tyo and you can follow this show on all the platforms that you listen on, Apple, Spotify, and the likes of the others. Remember to download the episodes and subscribe for more updates. All right, people have a great day and remember that everything will be perfectly balanced. Bye.